Is this for credits? The NZATE podcast. Typically, and I don't think we're the only podcast where this happens, that most interesting part of this conversation just occurred yeah. before we pushed the record button. Yeah, and now, good. as we kind of uncomfortably try to reconstruct that conversation, we're going to sound completely forced, don't we? But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zoom in and just pick up exactly the point where I was like, maybe we should record this. When good. I was talking to a student today, Jamie, good guy, such a cool dude, and he was saying staffs well he was saying it seems like a cool place to work here I was like it is staff are really happy I don't I haven't experienced that everywhere I've worked but then I was like do you know the cool thing about working with teenagers is that I am more myself authentically myself in a classroom environment than I am with adults my own age or the general public and part of that has got to do with hierarchy and being in a position of authority and and being able to like sometimes I go on these bizarre tangents that I'd never go down with with my friends because I think well they think they might think that that's totally weird but with my class I'll do that and I'll be like that's totally weird and you're welcome right and so there's this level of I don't know unapologeticness and confidence and hilarity that comes so much more naturally in the classroom than it does outside of the classroom. And I wish that's where the conversation sort of ended up with this kid. I wish I had that same degree of confidence and candor that I do in the classroom outside of it. My question is, I wonder how much our students feel that same liberty. I know I feel it. I love being in the classroom and I love the conversations and the directions that things go with the students and I feel safe with them as well. Yeah, yeah. But I want that safety. I hope that some of that experience that I'm having is reflected in their experience as well. But I think they've got each other as an audience, and I think that for them is a much harder thing. Yeah. Yeah. You hope that in being the weird person who you are, that you create some kind of safety net for other people to be like themselves, I guess, and to celebrate yeah. all of that strangeness. You've got COVID. How's your brain? Yeah, my brain, not much of me has been working, if I'm honest. So sympathies to anyone out there who, like me, has acquired COVID along the way. It was a lot tougher than I expected. And I'm still not back at school even, but I will be soon. Have you had your seven days? Yeah, I'm going to end up with eight days because I'm, um, yeah, a bit stricken down by it. But anyway... I know I'm not the only person with that story. And like what you said about five minutes ago, something about does not define me. (laughs) And this is a definite good reality check for me. You're not responsible for your own illnesses. So good. That's something that I think has been so good about um, COVID is that martyrdom. I think teachers are such martyrs when, when all of us, are, you know, not all of us, sorry, that's unfair, but I've certainly been like, oh, well, I've worked all through my holidays yeah. and I, I was marking until 11 o'clock. So like, that's yeah. just bad planning, isn't it? Yeah, I think of it as an interval type of occupation. Yeah. And go, 
absolutely yeah, at yeah. your full intensity when you're in a classroom. I mean, nobody else does mm. five or six hour long seminars day, day after day no. um, and all the things that go along with that. So uh, then, of course, you, you just need to stop. You burn out. Uh, or you'll never, yeah. It's not a sustainable job otherwise. But I agree there's also in our industry, as in many, the kind of whole culture of martyrdom, which is completely counterproductive and it's mm. it's embarrassing. I definitely, I, I mean, I've participated in it, but from this particular vantage point, I'm just feeling very grateful to my school for saying, don't come to school Stay if you're home. sick. And I really couldn't be in front of a group of students right now. Oh, this this week's podcast, by the way, I was thinking it's, it's Kado Muhammad and she has just had her release performance for for her new poetry anthology which we talk about in this podcast beautiful soul yeah her twitter account is amazing as well something i just adore about her her tweets <laughs> they're so just this, intimate aren't uh, they like you they're so intimate and raw and young yeah. there's something and i mean that with such aroha and nostalgia for being younger and i feel like her uh, vulnerability. She, there's just something I find so alluring. She was also, at the same time as all of that being true, she's also really tough and quite clear mm. in her politics. And mm. I could see her looking at me as the middle-aged, I'm still calling it middle, aged white man that I am and thinking, yeah. who are you anyway? And what have you got to do with anything? And um, mm. also her in taking that posture, actually standing her ground on any of the issues that might that might be about that kind of aspects of identity, yeah. you know, ethnicity or, or, or gender. And I loved that. I also thought it was hilarious mm. that we asked her to talk to us on the podcast and she agreed. And it wasn't actually until we were talking to her in person that she acknowledged that she didn't know who NZATE was or who we were or what this podcast was all about. She just, she I just know. said yes, you know. <laughs> Fantastic. And also that I think the day that we interviewed her, she had just come out of a breakup. Yeah, which was all I think Twitter. it was like the, f- yeah, first day of Ramadan. Um, yeah. And all of that potency is what I love so much about her language and her her character and um, and the energy that she's putting out into the universe. A really really cool young woman yeah. doing some amazing work. It was very cool to chat with her, and I'm so excited to follow her career. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, real firecracker. I'm, I don't know if I should croak my way through any more of an intro, but maybe just to nah. wish you a good fortnight, everybody, and you too, Philly. And you, Chris. Be well. Have some chicken soup, uh, which you should order from <laughs> delivery because neither of you are going to make it for each other, are you? No, we're not. It's been a bit spare. Yeah, it's a good idea. Delivering <laughs> delivered food. I'm gonna do that. Oh my god. Oh my gosh. Day seven and you've just thought about this. I figured out oh like goodness. supermarket delivery. That was awesome. See you next time. Likewise. Thank you. Matiwa. So welcome along to Kadro Muhammad, who's coming to speak to us about some of her poetry and herself. And Philly, we've been doing a few of these interviews of late, and we've kind of done a burst of them. And every time we do it, our guests get more interesting to me. So there's so many questions we're bursting to ask you, Kadro, but maybe we could start with the classic, which is, what made you write? Uh, kia ora, Chris and Philly. Thank you so much for having me tonight. Um, what made me want to write? I don't know how to answer that question because I feel like I've always been a writer. 
Um, and I've written, yeah, I feel like my whole life since I was very, very little. Um, writing was my favourite. Always love to tell stories. But I think I only took writing very seriously when I um, hit teenage years, maybe 15, 16. Um, and I think that was just because it was the one thing that I think I was kind of good at. So I stuck with it. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You, you're from Wellington. You grew up in Wellington. So actually, I was born in Somalia. Mm-hmm. Um, I left Somalia when I was about two or three. So I was very young when I arrived in New Zealand. Um, and I've pretty much been in Wellington ever since. So it's very home for me. Um, and a lot of my writing is, um, well, I connect a lot with my homeland and um, with Wellington because I think those are the two places I call home. Um, and are very special to me. And have you spent much time back in Somalia since since you were a little tiny person? No, I actually have not had a chance to go back to Somalia at all. Um, despite Somalia taking up so much of you know my writing, um, I think a lot of that is just because I still feel connected to it, despite the fact that I've never been there, and I you know I've been there since I was two. Um, but I did go back to Egypt when I in 2019, and that was the closest I'd ever gotten to Somalia. So a lot of my writing is also about Egypt and my time there because it was also very home, but not quite home. What was that like being being so close and yet so far away? It was um, quite an experience, and I think my writing, um, the collection that's coming out, a lot of it is um, centered around my experience in Egypt and feeling so close to home because you know Africa's the motherland and you know I'd gone back pretty much but I actually haven't um and I reference a lot um on my time back in Cairo because we stayed in Cairo um where there was a lot of Somali people um, and you could hear Somali the Somali language spoken so it was still very weird to to be in Africa to be around people who were Somalia and not be in Somalia it was very yeah Quite an, quite an experience. So I'm curious about a couple of things. First, how important uh, using language is for you to express that cultural di- uh, identity and that kind of dichotomous cultural identity. But also, do you write in Somali? That's a really good question. Um, so I am fluent in Somali spoken, but I can't write it very well. Um, and I struggle to I can read it and I can write it, but it takes a lot of time. So I don't often write in Somali. Um, and when I do write, I usually just write whatever comes to my mind. And um, English is my primary language. But I still um, feel very connected to Somali as a language. And I do use it as a tool throughout my poetry. Um, and I also use Arabic as well. Um, and that's because when I was younger, I spoke Somali very, very fluently. And then I went through a period of my life where I completely lost the language. So I could understand it okay-ish, um, but I couldn't respond at all in Somali. I could only respond in English. What do you think sat behind that? I think a lot of that was to do with the school. Like I went right. to an English school and I think I was very, um, yeah, I was, ve- I was very, yeah, in tune with um, the kids at school. And I think I really wanted to be like them more and more. Um, and a lot of the times I would say at school, you know, being bilingual wasn't that cool. So I didn't want to be bilingual. I wanted to only speak English like everyone else. It's sort of saddening to hear that, isn't it? Yeah, it's really, really funny. Um, but then I, when I was 15, I kind of um, went through a process of learning my language again, which is also roughly the same time that writing became a bit more serious for me. Um, and then I gained back my Somali. Um, and that was also roughly the same time that I was also reading and writing Arabic. 
Um, so now I think I use them as tools consistently. Would you say that being multilingual influences your writing in English? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, there's a poem actually in my collection where I use English, Arabic and Somali. Um, it's hard to kind of explain it at the moment, but I think using one word in Somali um, and then trying to translate that into English creates its own kind of poem almost mm. because there are, yeah, there are a lot of um, words that exist in Somali or Arabic that, that don't have direct translations in English. And to explain it, you kind of have to go through a journey. Do you have that poem? Could we hear it? It's really short. <laughs> and All it's, good. Um, um, it's, it's less of a poem, I think more of a statement maybe I guess I don't I don't know how to explain it but basically I just use two words um one word in Somali being Sakina and in Arabic being Sakin which are two words that sound very similar but one means razor blade and one means peace uh, or tranquility um and in that poem I think I tried to I wasn't really sure what I was trying to do but I've always felt those two words were really interesting because um, they're also written really similarly in Arabic and Somali. So I've always been like, oh, one means razor blade and one means like peace. It's really funny that they have such a different, you know, different meaning, but they look so similar. So I, I use that as a, as a, um, as a tool in, in that poem or in that statement, I guess you could say. Can we hear it? Um, it's not, not much to, it's really hard to explain. Um, you'd have to see it on the page to get what I mean. Yeah. What does it look like on the page? Um, it's pretty much the word Sakina in Arabic yep. and in the translation English and the word Sakin in Somali Arabic translated into English. Um, oh, right. Yeah, yeah, pretty much so that. I can see how like, reading that out, it's like... <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's right. like, I don't <laughs> know. Well, my <laughs> yeah. The, inst- the instruments yeah. are tuning in the background and yeah. <laughs> everybody's <Yeah>. waiting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I've got that orchestra pit. Um, yes. <laughs> the lights come up. <laughs> I'm interested in the expe- the teenage experience you talk about, about coolness and bilingualism uh, and what your feelings are now as an adult looking back on yourself in that period of your life. Yeah, I think that's um, a really interesting question because I feel very frustrated with that period of my life because you know it's when you're young that your language is really important to keep so that you can have it when you grow up um and I feel really frustrated you know that I that I felt like being bilingual not only wasn't cool but I think very much alienated me in in a way um and yeah I, I I already looked physically very different and to then be also you know have another layer of being different I think I struggled with that a lot as a child um, and I was very desperate to be like, I'm, I'm Kiwi, I'm trying to be Kiwi. Um, and to do that, I think the easiest thing for me to drop was um, my language or desperately try and drop it. It seems to me that in New Zealand, sometimes in our effort to be inclusive, we try and assert everyone's sameness rather than celebrate our differences. And although that might come from good intentions, I think it can be really harmful to anyone who isn't actually the same because it almost asks for an erasure of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I definitely agree with that hundred percent. Um, being young, I think up, I would say from the age of five when I started school till about 14, um, I was really desperate to be like everyone else because I think there's an almost pride in being like everyone else and you're really young and you want to be 
as similar as you can be. And there is a very strong culture in New Zealand where you're right, being, it is good to be different, but not too different. And it's also important to, um, cause I used to get a lot of compliments from my, for my accent when I was younger. Um, and I think that was also another driver of, oh, well, I've got a Kiwi accent and, um, I can speak English and that was considered to be an asset. Was it that you, yeah, that you, you, you used a Kiwi accent? How interesting. I saw your video on RE, um, talking about that experience of people complimenting you, but in doing so, having that experience of being othered or just being reminded. Yes, I haven't been complimented on my Kiwi accent recently, have you, <laughs> Philly? <laughs> no. <laughs> you know, like, so. no, I have not. well done, Philly, well done. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's talk about some of your pieces of writing. Uh, I'm keen on... If you're okay with it, I'd, I'd love to hear you read your piece that was in the spin-off because there's a couple of different versions of that. Is that right? Yeah, there, there is. I was just about to say, there's, there's um, a few versions, I don't, if you can call that, of it. The one in the spin-off is actually one of my first proper poems, I would say, because um, my idea of poetry when I was younger, which is really funny because I feel like that's I'm going back to it now, but when I was younger was just lots of words on a page with lots of breaks. And that was a poem and it didn't need anything else. Um, and then um, when I started learning how to actually write poetry or to write poetry that makes a little bit more sense, I think, um, this this is the, the poem that I wrote. Um, so I was really lucky to get, that, to get it into the spin-off. Yeah, so I can read it to you if you like. That would be wonderful. The Friday poem is such a fantastic platform. It's so cool. It's at, so cool. At normalizing beautiful literature. I love that there's yeah. a news platform where these, you know, stunning pieces of literature from like a, a, a really vast array of New Zealand writers beginning and really established. It's yeah, sort of it's coming really cool. out alongside stories of what's happening in the world. Yeah. Shot Christie's. It's called I'm Sure You've Heard. I'm sure you've heard of the news about the dead tomato fields, empty calderas and the droopy mountaintops that cast shadows over half-eaten sand. I'm sure you've heard all about the bloated bellies, the broken alphabet, the dust cake lashes and the long drawn-out breaths of the vultures that await your sleep. I'm sure you've heard all about what death is like here in the heart country where footprints become disjointed and rise from the earth where jet black eyes stare off into the distance and mosquitoes collect like tiny rain droplets on your skin. But did you know that it's also home to hordes of sheep and camel skin who carry star constellations in the pit of their stomach? That it's home to nomads who pick berries with their tongues, where pepper vines grow and defy gravity, where science dies right there at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro? Where wind pushes canoes over still water and the jagged outline of the coast bends and turns its spine, desperate to watch you sail. Where oud strings are carried by the wind. Where the songs of acacia leaves are hard to ignore. Where the bobab silhouette sits over the horizon, watching, observing. Where rose petals become jam. Where Zulu mats are crafted by the tiny dents in your fingers. Where lion calls dent the night. Did you hear, though, that this that this place is where the earth concaves outward, where sand dudes, where sand dunes bleed sunset hues, where water and milk are one and the same, where your heart is always awake, jolted and propelled into turmeric-soaked air. 
we've become quite preoccupied with the poet's choice to address the reader as you. What were you thinking when you chose to do that? I think when I wrote this, I was a very angry teenager. Um, mm. Or Yeah, I was 19, maybe 20. And I was always very, I think, frustrated with how little people knew about Africa. Um, but really, anywhere that is in the West, I think, I was always really frustrated by how there was one narrative um, and that was, you know, poverty and hunger and this and the beauty of Africa or the beauty of Somalia or the beauty of um, India, I don't know. Um, all of that is often ignored um, and our histories are ignored. And um, I, my, one of my favourite lines in there is, you know, where science dies at the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro. Mm, yeah, can you talk about that a little bit? Because that jumped out at me too. Yeah, that's my favourite line because I think despite Africa, you know, being the cradle of humanity and um, so much being, so much of civilization, human civilization coming from Africa, I think science or modern day science has done us quite a disservice. <laughs> um, you know, eugenics and, you know, all these horrible ideas of, of what people from Africa are actually like, you know. Um, so in in Africa, that kind of science dies really. Um, and and then when you add to that Africa operating as a source of source elements for major industry internationally, it operates but quite yeah. poorly there as well, doesn't it? Uh, this is such an English teacher question that I'm ashamed to ask <laughs> it, but may I ask why choose not to use capital letters at the beginning <laughs> of sentences? <laughs> no, I shouldn't be doing this. No, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. I did it for purely aesthetic reasons. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah, that is yeah. that is enough. That is the answer. Good. That's the yeah. answer I needed in my in the published collection. It's all capital letters, but on the spin-off, I want it to be lowercase because it looks cool. I've often found myself campaigning on the uh, uh, in challenging New Zealand culture in relation to their constructs around sexuality because I'm gay and the. Um, sometimes I've found that while I really I really want to do it and I'm driven to do it because I want to carve out a space for myself in our society, I also sometimes feel like I can't ever get away from it, like I start to become almost typecast as that person who will bring that perspective to the conversation. Do you ever encounter that in terms of being multilingual or being, you know, having as your origins Somalia or any of those things? Um, yeah, I, I find it really interesting position to be in because I find it both frustrating but also very humbling. Um, I think it's, yeah, it can be really frustrating to be looked at as the voice um, yeah. and I, I really don't like that because because um, on one hand, we are an incredibly diverse community as Muslims, as Somalis, as Africans in New Zealand, incredibly diverse perspectives. There is no one who fully agrees with me and there's no one I fully agree with. So it is really frustrating to be, you know, seen as that voice. Um, but I also think having that voice and having representation in media and literacy is so important. And so I feel very humbled that it can be some kind of representation to people. And I know for me, um, even I'm 24 and even now I desperately look for women who look like me in literature and in movies. And I'm lucky that, you know, it's more obvious now, but you do, you cling on to, to faces that look like yours or voices that look like, sound like yours because that's you and you feel important and you feel like, oh, 
this is New Zealand. New Zealand literature is very, very Pākehā. It's very male. And to, um, if I can be that little bit of a voice, um, I'm really, I'm really like humble that I can be that. But it's also, again, double-edged sword, I guess. Did you find that you had people as a teenager that you could look to as role models? Um, yes, I had no one in New Zealand, unfortunately. A lot of the people I um, loved and adored and looked up to were African-American writers, female writers, like Maya, Maya Angelou, um, who I love, and you know, people, yeah, African women who um, who wrote, really, were the only people that I could really look to. There was no one in New Zealand um, who looked anything like me. And the closest I could get was Māori women. I didn't have any kind of representation growing up. And I think that also adds to why prior to 15, I was so desperate to just not be, you know, not mm. be Somali or African or anything like that. And now there's you for others. Uh, I hope I can be someone it's interesting isn't it when you suddenly find yourself being cast in that spotlight yeah, it's quite it's, it's quite blinding yes I had a um, little girl or oh, a friend a friend's friend come up to me and say that they read a few of my poems and they're really really happy to see that I was black and um that I was Muslim and I thought oh that's so sweet because that's exactly how I would have you know I would have been really really excited to see someone who looked like me as well and she said that she was really happy and excited and really glad that I was you know, around. And I was like, okay, this is why I write. This is why I'm going to have to keep going. And this is why it's important. Mm. Yeah. That's so heartwarming. Yeah. How would you in classrooms, um, in a, in, in your dream situation, how would you like young people and teachers to be talking about your work and engaging with your work? For people to talk about me without me in the room is kind of scary, mm. I think. It's a very scary concept. Um, but I would hope that above everything, um, my narrative and my experiences are centred. Um, I would hope that, yeah, the, 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 you know, the narrative of the refugee, the immigrant the Somali, the African, the darker skin, um, and the Muslim, those voices. The Kiwi. And the, the Kiwi, the New Zealander. Mm-hmm. Um, those voices are, or those experiences are very centred. Um, and that my poetry or my writing in general is about me first and foremost and about anyone who can relate to it. Um, and if you if you find yourself reading my poetry, because it's ha- has happened before where people read a piece by me and they say, I didn't really get it. And I say, you know what, that's okay because it's not meant for you. Um, and I hope that is that is important and people remember that. And if you read a piece by me and you don't look anything like me and you don't understand it, that's okay. That's mm. fine. It wasn't meant for you anyway. That's really interesting. Um, Maybe people could write that in their exams, Philly. They could say, <laughs> this one no. wasn't meant for me. <laughs> and I think it, as well there's – there's so much about whiteness and privilege where you um, you take other narratives and you turn it around and in doing that you start to kind of own that narrative and again even if that's coming from a good space it's it's ends up coming back through this kind of dominant machine so yeah I, I really love that idea of looking at something engaging with something and then, respecting it but mm. leaving it yeah I often get people who read people who are Pakia who read my piece and say I thought it was really cool that you wrote about you know Africa or this or that and I think 
that's awesome. Um, I'm really glad that you got that message. But a lot of them don't go deeper than that. You know, a lot of people don't go like um, in this poem that I just read. A lot of people might see exactly what I was talking about when I said that, oh, people see Africa this way, but it's actually this way. Um, and that's that's easy to get. I think it's quite surface level. But the deep deeper part of that is the experience, the being told that, you know, people like you don't have a history, to sit in a history room and not see a face that looks like yours. These things are things that you might not fully understand if you're Pākehā. You might get it, but you don't get it. And so it's important to remember that there is always two ways to look at things. Um, there's the surface level and there's the deeper part. And if you can't go into the deeper part, that's okay, because you haven't lived those experiences. How can you? And so you can admire something on the surface and you can appreciate it. And you might even study it and understand it more. But it's not meant for you if you can't if you can't penetrate. So much of our teaching of text is about always pulling kids into that deeper. And what does it mean? And what is the societal connection? And it's that extended abstract thinking and the connections to the wider world. It would be very interesting to to think more about and to pull students into a space that is, this is not for us, this is not our experience. How do you pull students into that societal exploration when that exploration is about something not belonging to you? You know, because I don't think those are necessarily conversations that we ordinarily have in the English classroom because we're trying to make it relevant. But how powerful could it be if you could articulate why something doesn't need to be because it's not your experience? You know, I guess it's it's um, bordering on that, comp- that that discussion around privilege, which is really important. And that's assuming, of, of, of course, I'm saying this is um, picturing myself in front of a classroom who don't share those experiences. And perhaps I'm centering myself um, or thinking of myself as a learner here. But I think there's real potential providing as a teacher you can find your own way of articulating that before you are supporting students moving in that direction. Can I ask for your opinion, Cadro, if I was to explore this poem with a class, I would look at that midpoint where you shift from the you know, the stereotypical representation to something that's much more vivid, but also... I mean, the language becomes so rich and metaphorical and rhythmic and a lot more layered and nuanced. Anyone who's reading English for its form will see that anyway. And while they might not, it might not resonate with their experience, I think they can see there's something important going on there. And they can Absolutely. notice that it's become exotic as well. And that, and also yeah. that, that it's shifted from I'm sure you to but did you know, even just that shift of refrain. So in a sense, it's fine for people who are not recognising the experience that the poem's expressing to still see how it's structured in order to involve a new perspective. Do you see that as a worthwhile way of approaching a poem like that? I think so, absolutely. I think um, what I find in my personal experience, and I forget that you guys teach kids and not adults, but um, in my personal experience, what I find is a lot of people who are Pākehā, um, or just men sometimes who, who, who might be African but you know don't get things like I get it, I guess, will come up to me and they'll say, I like this poem or I didn't get this part or I don't get this, and I think it's okay if you didn't get it. But I think if you can read a piece – 
I think this one's quite an easy one to understand. But if you see a piece like this and you get it and you you can go deep and you can understand and you can get that narrative, and you might even click on my you know on my on my name and see that I'm African and that, that things might click then. I think that's good and really encourage. But if you read it for face value and you don't get it, I think that's okay. I quite like that idea that you're essentially presenting men, especially white men like me, as people who expect to understand, you know, or expect their perspective to be reflected yeah. in something. A lot of them are quite surprised at my unwillingness to go deeper with them. Not to not to say that they're not worth it. I just find, I just say, you know, if you don't get it, you don't get it. And that's okay. Because there are a lot of women who I read this and you. they get it. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot of people are quite surprised by that. And they think, oh, okay that's like yeah okay yeah or of course they can ask can't they that's the other option yes they can ask could we listen to another one sure so this one's called a prince song one whispers drowned out your morning yesterday when you stared up at the moon two light poured from the sky and i drowned holy ish i drowned but i kind of liked it because I felt like a mermaid, even though my lungs were filled with pebbles and moss, and my skin was black and blue, and my drowning kind of felt like a weird rain dance, so I drowned slash danced to the chorus of a Prince song. I was dead, but I was alive. In Islam, we follow the lunar calendar. Shual starts when the crescent moon is high in the air, like the leather dal, or ra, or zak, June is the rain season and July is Ramadan and Eid falls sometimes in December and other times in spring. I came here to sing a Tina Turner song, but every time I open my mouth, lavender petals and lily pads fall out. Does that mean I'm dying? That one's um, my favourite because it's very dramatic. It's dramatic and <laughs> it's think. got, I I would call it a characteristically New Zealand mischief to it as well, like it's <laughs> naughty. Yeah. <laughs> And it's very all over the place and I find it um, sometimes I don't know what I was thinking when I wrote certain things, but I think that's kind of cool. I think, was it Hera Lindsay Bird who said the same thing sometimes, that like her writing, sometimes she'll have this kind of like lightning bolt and it sort of follows the writing and it sort of moves around the page. And I love that with with poetry that can be quite sprawling is that you're just sort of going line by line. Like there's a catharsis of just yeah. being in that moment and being taken somewhere and, and having to just be responsive to the language. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. Yeah, I wrote that one in Ramadan. So it's Ramadan now. I wrote it Ramadan last year. And, yeah, I was hungry <laughs> and I was also very, very tired and I was a lot of different things. I think I was trying. I was trying to capture lots of emotions in in mm. one poem. And it's beautiful to to hear a poem about that experience, being that it is Ramadan like right now. Um, how's your experience of that going so far? It's pretty early days. Um, yeah, it's only day two. Um, it's going really well. I had a very very rough start because of caffeine withdrawals, which was really really. How tell us about your your anthology that's coming up? Yes, I've got a um, collection of poetry coming out called "We're All Made of Lightning" by We Are Babies. This collection, like a lot of the poetry that I share tonight, is about me and my experiences and where I'm from, um, and who I am as a person. And um, there's some short stories in there as well, and some prose stories. Um, which are kind of cool, I think. And I'm really excited for it. And it's my first ever collection, so I'm also very nervous. But um, 
yeah, it's been quite a journey and it comes out on May 6th. You've been listening to Is This For Credits, the podcast of the New Zealand Association for the Teaching of English. Check out what else we're up to by going to our website, nzate.org.nz.